The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, friends. We've been asked before if we have a Patreon, and we don't. Not technically. But if you're looking to support us in that way, we do have a virtual community that's only $12 a month. You'll get access to book discussions, author chats, workshops, exclusive newsletters, blog posts, videos, and more. Connect with the feminist readers near you or just make new internet friends. There's even an app to make the experience as fun and convenient as possible. Head to feministbookclub.com join and select virtual membership or find a link in our show notes. We can't wait to meet you. So hi, this is Ashley. I'm a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Laura, with Laura Chen. She has been a television writer for over a decade. She lives in Los Angeles, where she performs improv and tries to learn how to surf every summer. And she joins us to talk about her memoir, Acne. Laura, thank you for joining us today. Hi. What is your definition of feminism? I mean, I love really I mean I think it just comes down to love to love and full loving acceptance of yourself if you're a woman um, or women all women but really just I don't know love and acceptance of everything that is female that's as simple as its core love is such a powerful experience and being so yes make love the part of feminism yeah. Before we get into acne, I want to talk with or just ask you a couple questions about comedy. Comedy is having such a interesting place in regards to what people can say and what people cannot say. What is comedy's purpose and how do you use your story through comedy? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, for me, comedy allows us to talk about things that otherwise we might just shy away from completely because it's too painful or it's too uncomfortable or it's inappropriate dinner talk or whatever it is. It, I think you can say something and even conversationally with the people in your life, you can say something with a lighter manner and it becomes easier to digest. And I, I think it just is expanding on that with performance or with writing or television or whatever it is, certain messages can come across easier, less preachy, less melodramatic, but you're still receiving the message. You're still, you know, receiving the lesson or, or, or absorbing the story, but maybe it's just easier to absorb than, than something that was just heavy drama. And a lot of your memoir is rooted in comedy, just the little one-liners or even just the quips or just the reflections, I found myself laughing out loud. And in a <laughs> sense that like, I'll laugh at things where you talk about an uncomfortable experience 
And I laugh harder because I'm just enjoying the fact that I get to have this reaction to something that you've experienced and that you're reflecting on, but it's just a shared moment between people, you know, between you and the reader who you may never meet, but it's this connection built through comedy or built through humor. Yeah, I've always found that th- that there's so much comedy in in the moments of life that we're supposed to take so seriously, or we're not supposed to laugh at a funeral or whatever. I I find th- there's a moment. Um, I always think about this when I'm talking about comedy in, um, in Maya Angelou in uh, her memoir where she talked about church giggles. Yes. Oh my god! Yes. Oh my god! I just like I can't think about it without laughing or smiling. Yes. It's been in my like DNA for, you know, two decades or however long ago I read that book for the first time of just like the feeling of like, I'm not supposed to laugh right now, but I am. And, yes. and that kind of inappropriate laughter that comes out of your body. I've always had it. And yes. it wasn't until her book where I was like, oh, I'm okay. It's okay to have it. <laughs> I'm not a bad person because I'm laughing at this very serious play or, and I've just always felt that way. I've always found humor in death and dying. I found humor in terminal illness. I found humor in everything, you know, all the pain that somebody might experience in life. There's always this underlying irony or humor that is so deeply cathartic. And I think, you know, we have the saying, laugh at my pain. And it's not so much escaping from the pain, but it's aligning the reality with the pain that makes it so profound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what is acne about? I mean, it's funny. The title is very like, you know, kind of (laughs) what it's about, but but the skin stuff and the acne stuff is more almost a comedic through line to talk about. You know, I think we hear the word acne and you think like, oh, that's just a trivial teenage, you know, superficial skin disease. But but I think there is a great deal of seriousness and heavy events that can occur when someone's dealing with a skin condition. And and I don't think it's necessarily as trivial as people make it out to be. And I, I do get into acne in kind of a serious emotional way, but I also use my obsession with my beauty and the way I look as a comedic through line of, you know, my my parents are getting divorced and people are dying and all these crazy things are happening. And all I want to do is um, have clear skin. And so I used that because it really was how I felt. My teenage narcissism is all was all very accurate, but it, it helped me kind of tie these bigger events of my life together because all the while I was dealing with my skin in all these various uh, moments. And you do so brilliantly in the book. I mean, you have a number of experiences that you've gone through and even into adulthood and how what lingered from childhood and what you were unlearning still kind of lingers with you as an adult. Like I think most adults understand the either is trauma or what they didn't learn or what they didn't get to experience lingers with them as an adult. So as you were talking, you said that, you know, you, you were talking about divorce. You are a child of divorce, a cod, if you will. Um, <laughs> you spend much of the memoir in childhood. How did you care for yourself while writing about your childhood? That's a great question. I, at that point, and I started, I started writing it a few years ago. And at that point, I had done so much looking and digging and, you know, so it, it wasn't, inc- it wasn't incredibly painful to go back and look at this stuff. Cause I have journals and journals and journal, you know, I've, I have been pouring out this pain for, the, for a decade prior to starting writing it. There were moments where I was definitely, you know, 
sobbing while I was typing. But for the most part, there was a, a catharsis in, in the writing that the writing almost was the self-care. Sitting down every day for those few hours a day and, and, and looking at those stories felt almost like a form of self-care. I kind of am always doing, I mean, I, I do acupuncture and yoga and meditation and I go to three different kinds of therapists. <laughs> I'm kind of always doing uh, self-care. And you seem to have arrived at that at the work that you do when you wanted to arrive at it. Like it wasn't like when you were a child, you were you were doing therapy. It's just it came to a point in your life where you had to make the decision of how you wanted to move forward with your life. What was what did that feel like for you, especially being an adult? I mean, it it, it was really just awareness shifting. You know, I didn't know like for example, divorce. I didn't know that divorce was traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Nobody told me that. My parents didn't sit me down and go, this is going to affect you for the rest of your life. You know, you're Mm -hmm. always going to have issues with men because your dad's not going to be around every day. You know, no one told me that. And all I saw was friends around me who had one parent, you know, I, I, I just thought divorce was just something that happens. And I didn't know how much it was affecting me until late twenties and until my awareness started shifting in terms of um, the types of therapists I was seeing, the types of books I was reading, I was getting new information. It wasn't like I was, you know, 13 and going, wow, this divorce is really affecting me. And that's why I'm drinking. And that's why I'm smoking weed. And I didn't know any of that. I was like, this divorce is whatever, but I have a strong urge to go do myself in. And I don't see the connection (laughs) between the two (laughs) until later, until my awareness started to shift. And then the way that I approached healing and self-help began to change because I started to see the, the truth of how these things had affected me. The book reminds me of the film Kids. Um, <laughs> from from like 1995, yeah. But also, Fun Home, a tragic comic by Alison Bechdel. Yeah. Just again with the humor and just the the experiences that you get to have, whether it's drug use or sex or um, alcohol. To most people, can feel alarming, but it is what teenagers, most, you know, a number of teenagers get involved with. When did you decide that acne was going to be the focal point for your story? You touched briefly on it. Because I didn't go to college and I don't, I I still struggle with the idea of like, what kind of writer am I? You know, Mm -hmm. I put myself in the like, I'm a comedy writer, but I'm not a, a book writer is a different kind of, you know, intellectual that I will never reach that, you know. And so I, I never thought that I would write a book. I always revered books and, and I just looked at it as other too fancy for me. And then I at the pandemic, actually, I was home. I was grounded home and I started thinking about probably because I was in the mirror, you know, obsessing about my skin. And I was, I just was like, I want to write about it. And it was right at the beginning of 2020. I was like, I want to write about it. And I went back in my computer and I had all these stories, you know, Mm -hmm. because I'd always fantasized about writing a memoir, but I would never allow myself to do that. And so I started pulling all these stories and and looking at them. and, And I realized this moment when my niece died, I was driving to the dermatologist, you know, like this moment when these things happened in my life, I was dealing with my skin and, and it all kind of culminated from there. And I started pulling all these stories out that I had written over, you know, a decade or something and seeing how it was all connected to this sort of narcissism. <laughs> and yeah, it, it was the only way to write about the stories for me. It was like, as soon as I, that, that thing of skin came out, 
from the whatever gods of creativity. Um, I was like, that's the only way to, to tell it. And I also was like, no one really talks about it. Like there's so many books about like, you know, dealing with weight issues or cancer or whatever, you know, but like I've started following a lot of like acne positivity influencers on social media and it's been earth shattering because they're, they're all talking about all the things I dealt with that no one ever talked about right. when I was in, when I was growing up. We never talked about acne. You just deal with it and shame and you don't really talk about it. So that that was sort of inspiring to me. It was like, can you just write a book about this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, in an inadvertently, even though you did not see yourself as a writer or even writing a book, you were still arriving to writing what you have. And it's so nice to read your reflections. And then particularly about acne, which as you said, feels like something that happens only when you're a teenager, but, but those scars, if you will, last you for such a long time. And we live in a world that is so obsessed with beauty and skincare, but for a lot of people, it's not attainable. How are you accessing a world that is telling you like, oh, if you just put this pimple cream on with 57 products, then you'll feel a modicum of good about yourself. <laughs> it's it's torture. It's, it's literal torture. I mean, it was torture. And I have a friend now who's, she's in her late twenties and she just started breaking out on her forehead for the first time ever, you know? Mm -hmm. And she was like, I never knew how privileged I was. I never knew what I wasn't experiencing. You know, she just had skin and society accepted her skin. <laughs> and so she just lived her life like that. And now she's dealing with this new form of like introverted, you know, wondering where people looking at it. It's torturous in the way that all these, you know, whether you're dealing with alopecia or thyroid issue, whatever, like we have one box that people are allowed to fit in. And if they don't, good luck to you out there, you know, and it's, and it's so tragic because we're all so beautiful. Right. <laughs> we're all so perfect and we're all so beautiful and we're not allowed to feel that way. For people who, as you said about your friend who never had acne and so they're going through life like it's a glamorous fan blowing <laughs> their hair in the wind and then all of a sudden they get three dots around the their hairline and it's like I need to put a sun hat over my head and just never show my face in public so there are people who have always had acne who are trying to divulge into a world that sees them as other. And then you have people who never seen themselves as other just with across the board and are now having to acclimate with, oh, there are people who are being treated a certain way. And it happened. It only took happening it to me personally for it to sort of resonate. Which is so true for everything, you know, for skin color, for body size, for mm -hmm. hair texture. We, if we don't have it, it doesn't exist. Which is, you know, I mean, I get it. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm constantly learning from other people. Oh, that's your experience. That's how it felt to be in your body, to be in your skin, to have your face. You know, I don't, I only know my own experience, but part of it is like, I want, I, I would, would hope that anyone reading the book who's dealt with this can feel seen and heard and, and some form of connection. And then people who haven't dealt with it, it's, it's, you know, a little bit of a light on a little bit of awareness about oh, if I'm talking poorly about my skin in the mirror next to someone who has cystic acne, like I can be a little aware of like maybe what they're going through. Towards the end of the book, you talk about how you don't like self-help and I'm in that boat with you. What have you learned about your worldview from your upbringing and how did you give yourself the space to declare what you've experienced? I mean, I think like, yeah, the, the self-help category is broad. So I'm like, there's some self-help books that I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed mm -hmm. with like Louise Hay and 
and Eckhart Tolle. Okay. Yes. Tolle? I don't know. Yes. Um, there's there's a lot of books that have been like life changing um, for me. What was tricky about this book is I didn't want it to be a book about how to cure acne because I, I have it. I still deal with it every day and different every month a different a new face appears in the mirror and so I, I didn't want it to feel like oh if you you know go to um because I did, did a lot of like inner child work and and stress management and and that did help my skin dealing with my internal stress and all of that but the end of the book ultimately point of the book for me was the journey to accepting myself you know, and accepting that I'm going to break out. I'm going to break out at big, important days. I'm going to be covered in zits and I'm a still very beautiful girl and it's, it's okay. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I think sometimes, sometimes books can be, you know, how to be a perfect person or how to achieve these things. And ultimately when you read them, you're not going to be perfect afterward and you're still going to have whatever the thing is. And there can be a sense of failure or shame after that. So I never wanted this to feel like this is my cure-all to uh, all the problems in life. But but it it, it really was uh, a journey to self-acceptance and accepting mm-hmm. that we're going to have our skin issues, our weight issues, our teeth issues, our hair issues. We're going to have them. Everyone's going to have something. And, and, the, and the sooner we can figure out how to love ourselves internally and feel good internally, the better. You are half black and half white. Mm-hmm. What did you want to say about being biracial? I was excited to talk about it. I love talking about it because I think it, it's changed since Trump. But I think pre-Trump, a lot of white people really did think, really genuinely did think that like, there weren't racist people anymore. Mm. <laughs> and and so much of my mission has been informing people that that's not the case. And I think, I think what happens is like liberal minded white people go to like liberal minded schools and they go to liberal minded cities and they're like, it's over. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're like, we all love each other now. And I'm like, no, I'm in a unique position because well, I grew up in a, a red state and I grew up in an environment that was very much, you know, there was Confederate flags and, and things waving and, and ideology that I grew up around. But because I don't, I mean, I really don't look anything but white to most people. You know, some people look at me for a minute and they're like, you're half black. And I'm always like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but most people just assume I'm white. And I just saw a lot of bad behavior. And I think that because people that still harbor these sort of racist ideologies they know how to behave in front of people that appear brown or black you you could believe that it's over you know but it's not and I and I saw it all firsthand growing up and so I enjoy talking about it I mean a because I think they're always come across so stupid and it's so silly to me that the stupidity of racism is so silly um because it's so fundamentally so stupid (laughs) The depths of stupidity that it requires baffles me. And such a sign of that stupidity is the fact that somebody could have romantic feelings for me and think I'm beautiful and amazing until they find out that my father is black. And then they could lose those feelings. To me, is is so stupid. <laughs> There's not another word for it. And you, there's a passage in the book where you talk about being in school and kind of being like a spy. So like you were a Harriet, Harriet, the spy for your school. I mean, thank you for your, for your work. We appreciate it. it it's, it's funny. Cause people were always like, were you never scared to me? It was just never, there was never an option. And there were moments where like, there was something that's not in the book. We were like out in plant city 
I was with two of my friends who were white and we were in Plant City at a party in Florida. Plant City is like kind of rural and it was on a lake and and I immediately got out and I was like, oh, I don't like this. Place. Mm-hmm. And then I went inside and it was all white people. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like it just was giving me a, a vibe. And there was a guy there who I saw had a tattoo of black people boiling in a pot mm. and a white person stirring the pot. And I was like, oh, oh, I think we should, you know, like we should make our way out of here. And it was like time for us to go. And that person, as we're like, figuring out how we're leaving that person started talking to me and hitting on me and he mm-hmm. was like I like your uh hair people always compliment hair when it's different you know that's like their way in to talk to you he was like I like your hair and I uh, I was like oh I got it from my dad you know he's black and and I got it from my dad and and my friends were like oh and I was like oh. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me and and walked away I don't know I, I look back at that and I was like 14 or something but it, oh. there was never an option to not do that because it was so heartbreaking. You write about death. It's something inevitable that either is definitely going to happen to us or something that we're going to experience a loved one who has passed on. What did you want to share about the aftermath as you've experienced someone that you love who has died? I don't know. My relationship to death is, you know, it's shifted over the years because there's been a lot of it. And a lot of young people, a lot of losing young people has been a, a theme in my life. I feel like there's just absolutely no wrong way to grieve and there's almost no advice to give because it's such a deeply holy and uniquely personal experience that I would be hesitant to tell anyone how to deal with it Mm -hmm. because I, I think that you're doing it the right way. If you're doing it, you know, you're doing it the right way for yourself. You're processing it the right way for yourself and whatever that means, if that's to fall on your knees and scream, if that's to shut down and not talk to anyone for six months, if that's whatever, it's so big and it's so, it can be so earth shattering that it it really is just, you're doing it right. Cause it's the only way you can do it. And uh, yeah, but my relationship with it has shifted. I, I think as I've gotten more spiritual, as I've begun to really, really firmly believe that this is that there's maybe something after this that's helped me a lot, but I know there are a lot of people that don't believe that. And I wouldn't presume to tell them what to believe. As we can begin to conclude this conversation, did you feel the need to be funny? No, it's funny. I sometimes try to be serious and humor finds a way into things. I've found that to be more effective than trying to be funny. <laughs> I am about to direct a movie that hasn't been announced yet, so I can't tell you about it, but I'm about to direct a movie. And I wrote the script for it and I sat down going, I'm going to tell this very emotional story and it's going to be really sad and dramatic. And I'm going to step away from comedy and I'm going to go into this dramatic realm. And as soon as I started writing, the characters started being kind of ridiculous. And the movie is still emotional and more dramatic than anything I've ever written, but but a lot of there's a lot, a lot of humor in it. And it wasn't intentional. I just think I my parents are very funny, where there's just always been laughter throughout my whole life. There's always been laughter. Um and so I don't know how to not find something funny. It's not necessarily that I'm so hilarious I can't help but being hilarious. It's more that I find things so funny that I don't know how to tell a story without also sharing what I found funny about it. Is there a bookstore that you would like our audience to buy acne from? I mean, IndieBound is so cool, right? Because you can find local bookstores and I'm equal opportunity, whatever book, whatever word you want to buy it from. But I will 
shout out indie bookstores, local bookstores, obviously, but sometimes you don't want to pay for shipping and, you know, you go a different route. <laughs> and is there an organization that you would like to amplify something that pa- you're passionate about? I mean, I, I really love the Midnight Mission in Los Angeles. They do a lot of work with the homeless and the homeless situation. And this is not in, about my book at all, but the homeless situation in Los Angeles has gotten Oh boy. It's, are you there? Are you in LA? Okay. Yeah. So it's like, uh, yeah. Um, so I, I always shout out that group. Um, there's also a group called right girl, W R I T E right girl. They work with girls who want to be writers, young girls who want to be writers who might not, I guess, like myself might not view themselves as writers when they're, um, teenagers and, and they set up professional writers to work with them. And that's a great organization too. Acne is a phenomenal memoir. It is funny. It is poignant. It is um, stirring. It's it, it's just a wonderful read. And I'm so thankful to have been able to speak with you today, Laura Chen. Thank you so much. You're so wonderful. It was, Thank you. This was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a dangerous creature.